My name's John Makem. I'm the director of the China Studies Research Centre at Trobe University. We have a distinguished speaker this evening, um, Professor Daniel Bell, who's trying to make his way in. Uh, Daniel's come. Daniel's come all the way from Beijing for this talk, so it's quite a quite a quite a, a journey. Daniel um, is dean. He's dean of the Faculty of Politics and Public Administration at Shandong University. And there are not too many non-Chinese people uh, in such politically sensitive positions in China. So that's quite an achievement of distinction. He's also a professor at Schwarzman College at Tsinghua University. Uh, Daniel's been teaching and researching and being active in China since 2004, which I think we decided that was the first year we, we, we came across one another. They put us in the same room. Daniel is a prolific author, editor, commentator and columnist. Uh, he describes himself, or he has described himself as a political theorist and has published on a diverse range of topics from human rights to Confucianism and to um, cities. So the topic of tonight's talk is China's political future, democracy, meritocracy or both. And much of the talk is derived from um, Daniel's book, um, The China Model, um, Political Meritocracy and the Limits of Democracy. The book was published in 2015, Princeton University Press, and the paperback edition came out last year with an important uh, introduction, which um, he responds to some of his critics. <coughs> um, this is not only, this evening's not only Daniel, but um, it, we, we're hoping to have some engagement. Um, and so I've invited two distinguished commentators to provide some reflections after the talk. Uh, Professor John Fitzgerald uh, is director of the CSI Swinburne Program for Asia-Pacific Social Investment and Philanthropy, uh, deputy director, Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne University, and president of the Australian Academy of Humanities. Last but not least, of course, John is a leading China historian. Uh, also, Professor Baogang uh, He, he's Alfred Deakin Professor and Chair in International Relations at Deakin University. And Baogang is a, a leading authority on Chinese politics. So the idea is that Daniel will we'll invite Daniel to speak for perhaps 40 minutes. Um, our commentators will, will follow with, with, with their comments. And we hope to have some time after Daniel's responded to the commentators to, to open up to the floor to, for people to to raise questions. And I would ask you, if you're formulating questions as, as, as Daniel speaks, and of course to, to the commentators as well, please keep them short, sharp and focused. Uh, no soliloquies, please. Um, Professor Bell's recent book has generated <clears throat> widespread and sustained interest. In the book, he describes what he identifies as the leading political idea in China today. And I'll quote, it's, uh, the, 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 the main concept that he comes up with is vertical democratic meritocracy and which he defines as meaning democracy at lower levels um, of government with the political system becoming progressively more meritocratic as higher levels of government become involved. His key, one of his key arguments is that this non-democratic political system has been central to China's success over the past three decades. Now, the book, much to I think Daniel's surprise, um, has been widely reviewed uh, more so, I think, than any of his other publications. Um, <clears throat> and his central thesis has been widely discussed. There's quite a broad spectrum, spectrum of responses. Uh, on the praise end, uh, we have assessments such as um, the st strong praise for taking a non-Western, non-democratic political model seriously enough 
to draw out its normative and institutional implications within broader debates about good governance. As for the critics at the other end, some go so far as to describe it as an attack on democracy, misguided if not immoral political thinking, that Daniel is a, an apologist for the Chinese government, uh, and that he defends the status quo of political realities in China today. So, we now have an opportunity to find out from the man himself. Would you please welcome me in joining Professor Daniel Bell? Refer to if you're there because, uh, you're, you're because of your family background, your wealth maybe, or your family background. He says, no, to be an exemplary person, it depends. You have to have superior ability and virtue. He ch and since then, literally, over the past 2,500 years, those have been the main debates in China. How to select leaders with superior virtues and abilities. And even in the most ideal society, there's a very famous line from the Li Ji, about 2,000-year-old text that everybody uh, knows, at least everybody in China you know, knows, that the ideal society should be uh, everybody serves the, the community, you know, tianxia wei gong. But then the next line is xuan xian yu nang, which means that even in the most ideal society, you have to select leaders with superior abilities and virtues. Note the contrast there with the Marxist tradition. You know, Karl Marx's ideal of higher communism, you probably know, right? Everybody's equal. Uh, the technology does most of the dirty work. Therefore, we don't have to have a state. No need for a state. No need to pay attention to the quality of leaders. That's totally anti, let's just say, anti-Confucian, but anti-Chinese political culture. No matter what the context, you have to pay special attention to selecting leaders with superior abilities and virtues. And I think this view has been implemented always highly and perfectly throughout Chinese history. You know, we know about the imperial examination system. There were very harsh critics. You know, the most famous Song Dynasty, Confucian, Zhu Xi, he was a critic as he said, it's good at second meal ability, but you can't use examinations to select people with virtue. He didn't say we should do away with examinations, but we need other mechanisms. Um, so whether it's at the level of values or at the level of practice institutions, these have been the mainstream debates throughout Chinese history. So what happened in China? Well, in the 20th century, you probably know, right? The main tradition in China, whoops, the main tradition, 20th century, was anti-traditionalism. You know, basically, whether it's liberals or Marxists, most intellectuals just attack tradition and blame that for China's backwardness. And that culminated in the Cultural Revolution, which was uh, 10 years of systematic attacks on, on tradition, on the old stuff, as they said, and on this tradition of meritocracy. But after that, what happened? Well, people realized, especially educated people, intellectuals, realized this was a disaster. We had a terrible experience with arbitrary, uh, uh, with extreme populism and with personal dictatorship. We need to revive and reestablish our tradition of political meritocracy, which really meant, in practice, selecting leaders through a combination of examinations and performance evaluations at lower levels of government precisely because there had been this 2,000-year-old historical memory of these practices and institutions and values in China, it wasn't so difficult to revive these, these traditions. Now, not every country has that. I'm often asked, oh, why can't you do political meritocracy in other countries? If you don't have this institutional memory, it's much harder. You know, to promote one person, one vote, it's not that hard, right? Even in chaotic societies like Afghanistan or, or, or Iraq, you can, you can put in one person, one vote. It's not that complicated, whether it'll lead to good uh, 
consequence is a separate issue, often it won't, right? This, if you don't have a history of bureaucracy and a history of arguments about political meritocracy, it's much, much harder to implement some form of political meritocracy, and it requires years and years and years before you can pass any sort of judgment on, on this idea. So now you have these examining. By the way, I don't like this translation. Maybe John can correct me. Of you know, Gongyuan Kaoshir as civil service exams, because when you think of civil service, you tend to think of like the the kind of Western view that the civil servants are the implementers of. Um, uh, of the decisions of elected leaders, but I think as, 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 as John rightly pointed out in his, in his critical review of my book, in China there's no clear distinction between the civil servants and the decision makers. It was true in Chinese uh, imperial history and it's true now. Once you, once, you're put, once you go through these examinations, there's no clear separate tracks, right? Um, so the point is that because of this terrible experience with, uh, with extreme populism, and arbitrary personal dictatorship, there was an effort to reestablish a form of political meritocracy starting in the late 70s and early 80s, which is an ongoing process, still highly unfinished, as most of the reforms in China, once, you know, often two steps forward, one step backward, sometimes the other way around. But there's been some sort of uh, attempt to promote um, and reestablish, inform the tradition of meritocracy. Again, not in content, right? In imperial China, the examinations tested, especially in the, in the Ming and, and Qing dynasties, mainly for Confucian knowledge on, on examinations. Now, of course, there's much uh, less of that, although some people argue that there should be more. Um, and what counts as good performance at levels of government also, there's been a change now, right? His, you know, at least in theory, it depended over the past three decades on, uh, on economic performance. Somewhere along the track of a public official, Somewhere, if you didn't have somewhere along the way some sort of track record of good economic performance, be, then you, it would be hard to get promoted. Why? What's the logic? Well, over the past few decades, there was a con, almost a consensus that the main priority in China should be on poverty reduction. What's the best way of reducing poverty? Economic growth. So let's promote officials according to how well they do at promoting economic growth. Now, there's some empirical data whether, asking whether it's true or not. But I think most of what I've seen argues that somewhere along the way it plays some sort of role. Now it's becoming more complex because now in China the issues are more complex. You have, of course, many poor areas. Poverty reduction is still central, but rich gap between rich and poor is also central, more so in other places. Environmental sustainability. So now there's big debates about how we assess uh, performance. And Professor He Gang has clearly shown that there's lots of experiments going on in this respect. Like there's one city of Hangzhou, which is beautiful. I think somebody's here, right, from Hangzhou, they said earlier. Anyway, um, beautiful city, quite wealthy, but there's, lot, right? but there's lots of emphasis now on environmental sustainability. And officials there are being assessed according to their record of environmental sustainability. Is it going to work? We don't know. It's hard to measure environmental sustainability because sometimes, you know, pollution comes from outside. Should officials in Hangzhou be penalized or not? You know, how do you measure that? Well, let's try some experiments. And if it works in Hangzhou, then we can use that model or and adapt it anyway to the rest of China that has similar conditions. So there's a third element here when I describe this idea of, of the Chinese way of selecting and promoting leaders. At lower levels of government, in the start, there's been lots of experiments and with one person, one vote. 
elections to choose leaders. In between, lots of experiments about how to assess uh, performance of public officials. And at higher levels, again, meritocratic uh, 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 qualities matter more and more. At least that's the theory. Um, now, what's another reason for why political meritocracy Keep on, I have a very slow learning curve. Okay, okay. Um, what's another reason why we should use political meritocracy as a standard for assessing political progress and regress in China? Again, it shouldn't be just, oh, I talked to a few people at Tsinghua University. There's been lots of surveys out there showing my former colleague, who unfortunately passed away, called Shi Tianjian. He was a professor at Duke and at uh, Tsinghua University. He passed away at a very young age, 59, but his, but his book was recently published, um, revised by his former supervisor, um, and, he, and he shows that according to his survey data, and I, I knew him at the time, he was very surprised, he didn't expect this result, that there's very strong attachment to what he calls guardianship discourse, which is quite similar to this idea that I'm calling political meritocracy. That there's very strong support for the view that, you know, what matters more to most people in China is to have competent and honest leaders. We don't care so much how they get there, but what matters is that we have competent and honest leaders who are there to implement policies that benefit the people. That's much more important than having the opportunity to participate in politics in different means. And there's lots of, lots of survey data bears this out. So who are we to come and say that, you know, we should use a different standard for uh, judging political progress and regress in China? if this is what's endorsed by the large majority of people in China. Another reason, people say, oh, you're anti-democratic. Not at all. Of course, democracy is a good thing in many ways, right? There's a famous book by, or article, which was developed into a book by, um, now he, he's at Beida, uh, arguing that d democracy is a good thing. Now, yes, um, it's a good idea to have elections, especially at lower levels of government, where the stakes are not so big, where people have better uh, understanding of the quality of their leaders, they have f personal face-to-face -face experience with them. They can, you know, in villages people know better than, you know, watching on TV people debate. You have better knowledge whether who's corrupt, who's not, and so on. The, the stakes are not so big, fine. And as you can also have some form of elections at higher levels, not initially one person vote, some sort of form, right? Of course, elections isn't the only way of participating in politics, right? People say, oh, one person, one vote has a great advantage that everybody has an equal right to participate in politics. Examinations have the same function in theory, right? Everybody has an equal right to participate in examinations that put them on the road to political power. Same, same sort of idea in principle, not in imperial China, because women couldn't do it and there were other excluded groups, but now, in principle, the examinations are open to everybody. It's also a form of political participation, but of course, not the only one, right? As Professor He Baogang has shown, many other things matter, including deliberation, deliberative polls, and transparency. And you can even argue that referenda in my book, again, I wrote this, uh, I must confess, uh, before Brexit and so on. I, I'm from Quebec, right? And in Quebec, the one interesting difference between, at least in, if you look at the history of Quebec, between regular elections and referenda is that in regular elections, people are often systematically misinformed and just vote with their heart in fairly unreflective ways. But we had two referenda on whether Quebec should be independent. Those were preceded by so much deliberation beforehand. The voters were much better informed than in regular elections. So I think there's a much better case uh, at higher levels of government for having referenda than for having 
regular elections. At least that's what I thought in my book, but now that I see Brexit and others, I'm, I'm much less persuaded of this view. But the general point that many democratic values and practices are fully compatible with meritocracy is an argument for it. What's not incompatible is having one person, one vote, two select leaders at higher levels of government because that would wreck the advantages of political meritocracy. Again, political meritocracy is imperfect, but even in its imperfect form, it has some advantages. What are those advantages? Well, think about it. Leaders can plan for the long term without being subject to the whims of the electoral cycle. They could take decisions on, for example, climate change. This is what we're going to do in the year 2030. We can be pretty sure that China is going to stick to that, you know, unless the whole system collapses, which, uh, which is highly unlikely. Or on issues like free trade, you know, China is going to stick to its accord, right? Unlike, you know, in, you know, if there's a, a elections, like in the U.S., whoop, the new president can say, I'm not interested in climate change. I'm not interested in Trans-Pacific Accord. Just change the whole thing after years and years of negotiation. You're not going to have that in China. Leaders can plan for the long term, and we can be quite sure that they're going to stick to those, uh, to those obligations. If you have one person, one vote, it would change all that. Many other advantages. Just think about it. Again, years, all the leaders in China have political experience. They're not going to make these bad beginner's mistakes. You know, that, for example, in the U.S., the first month has been pretty disastrous, right? Precisely because of these beginner's mistakes. You're not going to have that in China, right? Because the leaders have lots of experience, political experience, at lower levels of government. Um, the leaders, they can spend their time thinking about policy issues instead of, you know, Instead of, like in the, again, in big countries, you have to use big countries as standards to compare China. You know, the U.S., uh, you, could, you could compare with India, where, where it would be actually, to be frank, many more favorable to China, but let me stick to the U.S. Um, you know, most of the leaders have to spend so much of their time raising money to, be, to stay in office and to win the next election. Not stay in office, but to, to win the next election. Um, and they have to give the same speech over and over again. I mean, if you had to design a political system from scratch, uh, that would be ridiculous, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to, you would want to s design a system where political leaders can spend most of their time learning about, about policy, learning about history, learning about economics, learning about international relations. Um, but in a democratic one-person, one-vote, political systems choose top leaders, they have to spend so much of their time on irrelevant and inefficient things, like raising money, giving the same speech over and over again, having debates on TV where you're expected to make judgments whether I like this leader based on whether they smile the right way and so on, you know. Um, so, so, but the rest of democracy is fully compatible with political meritocracy. Uh, whoops. Now, this is another very interesting point. Sorry, I'm not saying that the other points are interesting to me, not necessarily to you. Um, when, for example, the U.S. founding fathers designed their uh, constitution, they could assume that the constitution, they're, they're designing a political system that's meant to be valid for decades, like let's just say 50 years. And that's good. You want stability when you design a constitution, right? And you want to make it hard to change under certain conditions, under conditions where the society is fairly stable and you don't expect major changes. That was true in perhaps to a certain extent, in the, 17th, in, in, in the 1700s. It's not true now. Things change so fast. There's so many global and unpredictable events, you know, whether it's financial shocks that shake the world, whether it's environmental catastrophe. 
you know, artificial intelligence is going to change our way of life over the next 30 years. It's going to be really different. Whatever political system you have in place now, hopefully it'll be different and adaptable for new conditions 30 years from now. Because things change much more fast. Or to put it in kind of slogan form, it matters much better now to have good people at the top who are adaptable, who can react to new conditions and plan for new events rather than having stable and good political institutions. Because what it's good political institution now can be severely dysfunctional 30 years from now. And the biggest problem in the U.S. political system, arguably, is that this, it's just almost impossible to change the Constitution. It's too stale. You know, as Fukuyama himself put it, too many veto points. It's hard to get anything done. So I think it's a good thing when you have a, a leader like Trump now in power. But nonetheless, when you want to have, um, when you want to plan for the future for unpredictable events, then it's not necessarily a good thing. So um, I'm running out of time. But again, to summarize my basic view here, um, I'm arguing that in a Chinese political context, again, it's a contextual claim at higher levels of government, it's much better to pay more attention that political system should be explicitly designed to select political leaders with superior abilities and virtues. And in my book, I argue what are the key abilities, not just intellectual ability, but social skills matter, actually. And of course, so does virtue. But let me just say quickly what are the main problems with the political system, because again, I'm, I'm arguing here what should be the ideal. Like elsewhere, there's a huge, especially in big countries, there's a huge gap between the ideal and the reality. What are the, what are the key problems? Well, the first problem, obviously, is corruption, right? How can you have, uh, how can you have, how can you select, like the, the bottom line of virtue is that you shouldn't be corrupt. You shouldn't misuse public funds for your own or family uh, interests. Obviously, there's tons of corruption in China. Now, people who have met higher level political leaders in China tend to be highly impressed, especially if you speak to people in the business world and they compare the leaders they met in China with other countries and whoa, they're really smart, really on top of things. Um, but of course, there's lots of corruption in the political system. Now, why is that a problem in China? Other countries have corruption, right? In fact, other countries, according to Transparency International, are often more corrupt. You know, whether it's India or Indonesia or even Italy and Greece, but it's not, let's just say, it's not an existential threat in democratic countries. Why? Okay, I'll use another example from Montreal, where I'm from. We've had 30 years of corrupt mayors, but nobody, it doesn't cause people to question the underlying legitimacy of the whole system because you tend to vote, well, let's in the next election, let's try and choose a mayor who's less corrupt. It doesn't work, but it satisfies our hearts. Okay, at least in the next election, we can have the right to vote those guys out of power and choose the next one. Does it really help with corruption? Not necessarily, but it's a kind of safety valve. Meritocracy doesn't have that safety valve. If the leaders are corrupt and meritocratic, in countries where meritocracy is, is part of the underlying ideal, it really is a stake in the heart of the whole system um, because it means that the system is not legitimate. And the leaders know that. It's not just me who's saying that. The leaders themselves say that. And also, if you look at Chinese history, you know, why did the, again, I might, the historians will hate these simplifications, you know, but why did the Qing dynasty collapse? Why did the Ming dynasty collapse? Or why did the communists beat the KMT. One very important reason is that the KMT was viewed as more corrupt. You know, if China doesn't deal with corruption, the whole system is under threat. That's why you have the most systematic anti-corruption drive in recent Chinese history. 
again, it's having, I think it's almost too excessive. Like now, as Dina has mentioned earlier, I, can, I find it hard to do anything because there's all these constraints on using funds because people are more worried about misusing funds. You know? so, it's, so there's, I think, almost too much emphasis on preventing bad things and not enough rewarding people for tr who try to do good things. But anyway, so leave that aside. If you want to understand why there's this anti-corruption drive in China, it's because meritocracy is an underlying ideal of the whole political system. The good news, I think, and here it's speculative, is that I think, and not that speculative, because I do think there's a huge difference between now and three or four years ago. I think there is already very substantial progress made on corruption, and there's, I can sh show, uh, there's studies that, that show this out, not just my own experience. Um, I think it's relying too much now on, on harsh punishment or legalist fajia means to, to deal with the issue. There's a need for many other mechanisms, including increasing salaries for public officials and so on. But I do think that there's been a change now when most public officials think twice about misusing funds, which wasn't true three or four years ago. It's already huge progress. I expect China to continue to make progress in that more so than democratic countries at similar levels of economic development, precisely because um, meritocracy is the uh, legitimizing ideal in China. I'm going to end here because I think we should, we should uh, uh, it's much more interesting for everybody to listen to diverse views. Thank you. So I'm going to ask um, Professor uh, Baogang He from Deakin University to be our first commentator. Yeah, it's a great honor always to talk with uh, Daniel, engage his uh, writing. So first, I should praise his writing. I published a book last year in, in which I mentioned that David is a, uh, Daniel Bell is the best example who can engage the different kind of cultural traditions. So he really kind of in, de developed a sort of kind of genuine dialogue among and across the tradition of, of the political thoughts on this very small planet. And uh, his, uh, his work is really trying to decenter Western thoughts. Western thoughts is only one of the political ideas in this small human planet. And there are many others equally important. So he in always insists us to understand the politics beyond the theorizing, just only generated by history of Western political experience. So as he assured us equally, we should expand, expand our horizon to look at other experience. So as his example showed us, he drawn on Chinese experiences, develop a certain idea of meritocracy. So, so much are very nice words, but then here I come to the harsh criticism. <laughs> <laughs> so, <coughs> so, in the second slides, he mentioned that this kind of currently this uh, democracy authoritarianism, such a framework, and it really is uh, distorted of reality. And uh, then the blank post like North Korea, China, Iran, all the as uh, authoritarianism. But then he said, now we need a nuances as a kind of uh, understanding political system. That's fair, I agree. And, uh, and indeed, the democracy distinction between democracy and authoritarianism has been blurred in many areas when we think about like public healing, uh, public deliberation. So you can find uh, so many experiments 
of the public deliberation. Actually, the scale, the number of public hearings is probably much larger than the United States. So there's a lot of the, the kind of blurring distinction between democracy and authoritarian. So I do think he has some merit points. But I, I think that one of the issues is really issue is that the, whether we should, the, I, I want to shift his focus. So today he focuses on the why meritocracy is so important. So he gave me seven, eight reasons. So I think that I thought this issue is uh, obvious. It's important, not only for the bigger country, even small country, even a family, even a university need a meritocracy. You need a meritocracy. You, you cannot have a small community as family uh, as someone just stupid people around the country. So the size is this. The last is only bigger country need a meritocracy. Small country also need a meritocracy. But you are, you are, you are right that is uh, if the small country make a mistake, so that's a small impact. Big country have a big impact. So that's right. So, so the, the, so the, the question is that it's not so important of the meritocracy. I think that everyone probably in this room will believe to a certain extent meritocracy is important. But the question is, uh, how do we understand meritocracy practice or meritocratic institution operate in China? How does it really work out in reality? In particular, you, miss, you didn't mention this that as a part, how to mix with the democracy practice. So that's an important issue. So, so I would like to shift our uh, our question from the why ought question, ought question to the is question, that is how meritocracy, meritocracy system operate in China. So then if we think this question, then I think that's a really important issue. We need to still bring the authoritarian back. So this is how we are different. We have a disagreement on this issue. I think that's really uh, a case that China has been developed meritocracy, agree, in the last decade, but it's a sort of authoritarian uh, meritocracy. So meritocracy can coexist, as you said, with a democracy, but it can also coexist with authoritarianism, coexist with autocracy, coexist with Islamic society. So all this, in all human history, human society, organization, always there's a requirement to be meritocratic. That's a distribution of power resources are allocated according to the merit. Then whatever, how do we understand merit? That's a separate issue. But that's our, it's always constant practice. So if we recognize these this, this issues, then I think this then it's really important. How can we avoid meritocratic defense of authoritarianism? That's a very important issue in country in China. So we, we cannot talk about meritocracy, then avoid the issue of the nature of Chinese politics still authoritarianism. And uh, so this is I think a fundamental issue. The issue is that you praise uh, you frame the question about democracy and uh, meritocracy as uh, equal 
two are conceptually, they are both uh, equal position. But I think this, this is uh, this we have a different uh, 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 view here. I think that you you has then then you has bought the concept of meritocracy as a kind of idea regime type. But uh, here I disagree with you. I think that we, if we think about the the the, the, uh, the conceptual levels, conceptual level. So we have a highest level the regime. Under regime we have a democracy, autocracy. A mixed region or authoritarian. Then under that, then we have a meritocracy. We can have a authoritarian meritocracy. We can also have a democratic uh, uh, meritocracy. So that's the first thing. So, so I think we need to make distinction. But uh, by saying that kind of call the authoritarian meritocracy does not mean we deny the meritocratic practice. In some cases, there are many advantages of authoritarian meritocracy because they, they can do things without popular constraint. That's their advantage. So there's many something actually West can learn from it. So I do not imply a very judgment. Authoritarian meritocracy is bad things. But I'm just empirical. We need to study how this operate. So if we think about this one, now immediately, so what constitutes merit in China is really is always interpreted by authoritarian leader for their needs at a different time. So that what is a merit? No. Is this in your book too? You acknowledge there's a different understanding, different interpretation. So in particular, is authoritarian leader make the final decision what constitutes merit. That's the final. They make a final decision. People are excluded. And then, then the very important issue, when it comes to appointment, so loyalty always above merit in this system. They do consider that merit, but you first you must lie to me. If you don't lie to me, I won't appoint you. I will not promote you. So the loyalty is above merit. That's, that's, the, that's the thing. And uh, so the, the, the issue is, uh, I think, that really we, you, you so far you haven't silent on this critical issue. Top leader, are they really uh, truly chosen by merit in the past decades? Now that's uh, come to your third slide, you said China has established meritocracy. This is a really empirical question. So, so I was thinking just this, is, uh, I think this, is, if you open the, 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 this, Look at this another category, the authoritarian uh, meritocracy. Immediately, we should not frame our question. That's the often heard. That is, use a meritocracy as an alternative to democracy. That the people said, ah, oh, China have a meritocracy. They don't need a democracy. That's the way think actually is misleading, conceptually. They are not, they are not the equal conceptually. They're different, different level. So the, the, the issue is we should ask uh, how the Chinese meritocracy operate in real life. What is their real advantage? What is the problem? In particular, you mentioned this later part. Should meritocracy and democracy should be combined both? Agree. We need to combine the together. But I was surprised in my the kind of published article, commercial paper, I said, you haven't looked at this. Uh, so many practices, China try to mix those two together. So you, you, you haven't touched on that, but that's the most important. But then if we ask why China try to mix 
like this is most important we call three ticket systems. So to be a leader, you need tickets from the popular consent, popular vote. You need the tickets from your past examination. Third is the tickets of the voting by leader. So that's a mix, really democracy meritocracy. But why those systems have stopped in the last one or two years? Again, the nature of authoritarian system come to uh, come out. So there's a so there's a tension between democracy and meritocracy in China in the Chinese practice is a constant serious problem. But why there's always a tension? Now, one of the issue I, I think is is generated by this authoritarian system. So I was thinking if we uh, understand this kind of authoritarian meritocracy. It might be help us to understand how the system operates. So I'm the more kind of try to understand what's going on, how they really operate. But then the, probably I will agree in the future this is meritocracy meritocracy still will develop. There are some limits there. And there's some advantage better than the West society. That then the West actually overlooks that issue. But that's uh, that's the, that is the one of the issues I was thinking that if we come to this issue, so you, for, you I really appre- I'm very much admire your work on this theorizing. But in order to, to really offer some that become certain public policy recommendation, we need to need look at how the empirically, how the China really develops that meritocracy, what the Western can learn from it. Thank you. <laughs> So I'm Professor John Fitzgerald from Swinburne University. Thank you very much, Daniel, for your presentation, and thank you, John, for this opportunity to speak. Um, I have, in response to Daniel's book, which I enjoyed reading, published a critique. I don't propose to go back over that ground, but rather to address some of the issues that Daniel raised here this evening, which cover much of that ground but um, perhaps have been adjusted a little along the way, and I appreciate that. I guess the first thing I'd like to note is my particular appreciation for the idea that we have a duty inside and outside China to recognise and appreciate non-democratic and non-Western systems of governance. They deserve scrutiny, they deserve recognition, they deserve to be evaluated on their merits. I would suggest that's a slightly different question from the question of whether or not China operates as a meritocracy. Because it could be that China actually has a damn fine authoritarian system which is not in the least bit meritocratic and deserves scrutiny on the outcomes that the system generates alone. And again, the second point I suppose that Daniel emphasised tonight, that it's important to explore the values or the, the ethical components of different political traditions. I would agree with this. But if we look at China's, meritocracy doesn't come at the top of the list. Um, the, sort of the ethical components around statecraft which drive the Communist Party state, and to some extent earlier imperial forms of state, include the idea of national unity above all else, the idea that China has a central place in the world. These are ethical claims, not merely political ones. <clears throat> they have to do with the hierarchical structure of global and domestic affairs. Um, they have to do with the idea of politics as a form of, what is it, minbun. You know, it's based in people 
And however autocratic the government, it needs to be conscious of the people that it's governing and of their interests. And it's outcome-oriented. It's focused on wealth and power in the first instance, and perhaps other things in times to come, such as sustainability. Now, each of these are, in a sense, ethical claims by which we might judge China. None of them involves meritocracy necessarily. So I guess where I would differ is in saying, let's evaluate China in its own terms, as well as others. But if we do, why do we need to put meritocracy in the mix? Because, as Bagang was suggesting, that's an empirical question is the extent to which China does operate as a meritocratic system, and many would suggest that it does not. Certainly the evidence I've seen to date um, would not suggest so. Then why is it so important to claim that China is a meritocracy? And this, I suppose, is the question. I can understand from what Daniel was saying today. To be able to claim this, and that's a claim made in good faith, is because an authoritarian system requires a license to operate. And if it's not meritocratic, it doesn't have one. Well, I'd like to suggest it's not quite like that. That a state that's successful, that delivers products and goods, however corrupt, nasty or autocratic, however little meritocracy in evidence, <clears throat> can still be a, it still delivers a kind of license to operate. <clears throat> so in terms of this, I'd just like to throw out this idea of a license to operate. What is it about the state that it needs to demonstrate to its people? such that it can be legitimate. And if meritocracy is part of that, we need to discuss that as an issue in legitimacy rather than an issue that's resolved through empirical analysis of whether or not the system is meritocratic or not. Now, I think in positing the question the way it has, Daniel is working in a great tradition of Western thinking about China, which is trying not only to say what China is, but to critique the West in the process. And this knows, this goes back a long way, as we know, from you know Voltaire, China's the rational society, in contrast to corrupt and feudal Europe, or through the Enlightenment, you know Hegel's notion of China as a, a nation of an empire of slaves, in contrast to the freedom-loving burgher of Germany. You know, <clears throat> the idea that, that, or the notion that one can, coming at it, the problem of what China is, thinking about what the West is, and projecting onto China, sort of the counter-image of whatever it is we think we are, is a tradition within which many of us operate. And I see Daniel operating in that tradition. I think it's a noble but flawed tradition because it doesn't invite us then to go to the next step and say, what is the evidence? What is this thing that China is? And when I hear, for example, Madame Fu Ying, the current, is she currently um, foreign, Deputy Foreign Minister, formerly Ambassador to Australia, tell us, and she said this fairly recently, The West is too arrogant. It must stop lecturing us and trying to change China. Unless you can accept China as it is, there's no basis for a relationship. Now, when she said China as it is, she was referring, in fact, to China's guoqing. And when people in China discuss the guoqing, they actually mean the humph of the state, the autocratic, unified, you know, delivery uh, system that is the Chinese state that sets out a set of objectives and goes and achieves them. There's no hint in there as far as I could tell, of meritocracy. Um, If we go looking for empirical evidence of that meritocracy, and I'd I'd just like to suggest that the model of, you know, top and bottom doesn't quite work. Why? Well, the idea that at the top it's a meritocratic appointment, in the middle there's sort of experimental mix, and on the bottom it's grassroots democracy, doesn't actually apply to the state. The grassroots democracy, such as it is, the place where elections are held, the Xiangtuan village level, is not part of the state. It's the so-called community level. No decision at that level 
has any bearing on any state jurisdiction because the state begins at the gin, the higher level. And so as far as the state is concerned, from top to bottom, it's appointment by the Zhuzhibu, by the Central Organization Department of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, the basis on which those criteria, the, the criteria by which the Zhuzhibu Organization Bureau makes those appointments is identical from the very top to the very bottom of the state system. <coughs> if you look at a Zhuzhibu system, I mean, it's not that the centre appoints the locality, far from it. The next level down does so, but it applies the same principles, whatever they might be. And they are loyalty to the party, being able to deliver on the next set of outcomes, whether your performance appraisal shows that you're loyal and delivering. And that sort of system applies. Where it doesn't apply, it's because there's corrupt collusion in the appointment of people at lower levels, which doesn't apply at the higher level. I suspect that kind of collusive corruption is much grander, if less rewarding, at the lower levels than it is at the top. Now, I'm happy to be corrected on that matter. My understanding is Zhuzhibu operates pretty well down to the gin level when it comes to political appointees. And the basis of the selection, well, you could call it meritocratic, but why? Because they don't. <coughs> they call it loyalty. And I was just interested in looking at the latest directions from the education ministry around how to police compliance with party directives in universities. And this will come across the desk of Dean if it hasn't already, I suppose. Um, the performance appraisal system, I mean, you know, section 10, is to be used to ensure that no dangerous thoughts are raised in class and no Western works are to be used. So even the performance appraisal system, which one can put forward as a sign of a rational, bureaucratic, meritocratic system, is geared in the first instance, certainly in these latest directives, towards loyalty. And if you look at the courts, at the universities and what have you, I'm not saying back in 2005, 6, 7, when there was talk of relatively independent civil society, uh, a legal system which perhaps slightly may have some measure of independence. That's you know, much of that. The movement in recent recent years has been in the reverse direction, under Xi Jinping. I've got no idea what the future holds, but I don't think it's the idea of meritocracy that's driving that change, even if it remains to this day part of that license to operate on the part of an autocratic state. I think China as an autocratic state ought to be measured on the grounds it seeks to measure itself. That's not that the selection processes are ideal. There are people in China who have deep concerns at the very highest levels about that. And they don't call it, well, Yaoyang calls it selectocracy. See, why not call it a selectocracy? Because it actually has nothing to do with merit. It has to do with a host of criteria linked to um, you know, outcomes, linked to um, clean skin, that is not being corrupt, which isn't actually meritorious, it's just normal. I mean, we're not supposed to be corrupt. And, and linked to other criteria, which don't always come down to questions of virtue and talent. The, deliver, the capacity to deliver in this country, as in most countries, is rarely linked to virtue and talent. It usually has to do with their opposite, if I may say. And China succeeded very well in that respect. And I'll leave my comments there. Thanks very much. I'm going to ask... Uh, Daniel, if uh, he would like to respond to, to the comments. Thank you. So great comments, and it's almost impossible to respond. I want to leave some time for, uh, for other questions and comments. So let me just, um, I guess the first part, um, you know, uh, look, of course I agree that empirical, and ha you know, half of my book actually is, you know, relies a lot on empirical information. I, I missed out on some. Thank you for, for providing on some. And since then, the one thing that I'm a little bit, 
you know, happy about is that more and more now I, I'm getting articles to review where people are using this idea of meritocracy as a way of assessing what's going on because there hadn't been that much about it uh, before. So I did try to, to uh, but far, far from sufficiently. And it's also because, um, so you say we should use the word authoritarianism, but I think this re one problem, it's a very practical problem, which is that it's hard to publish political science works in the English-speaking world if you don't use this democratic authoritarian framework. I have lots of friends inside China and who are in, from China working in the Western world who say, if I don't use this democracy versus authoritarian dichotomy, I can't be published. The referees knock me down. It's so dogmatic that way. That's one reason why I think we need to, to, to change this language. Now, of course, if by authoritarian means that we don't use one person, one vote to select leaders, then of course that's, that's but I'm, my point is that that covers so much stuff, including North Korea, you know, family-run cruel dictatorships, uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, military dictatorships in Egypt. Those are fundamentally different than a system that relies on this very powerful organization department to, you know, with, to, to select and promote leaders throughout levels of government. And by the way, it's not true that they use the same criteria at all levels of government. And, and this is and one, of, and one problem with the organization problem is that they're not sufficiently transparent. I wish they were. But I was lucky enough to have one opportunity to meet Li Yuanchao when he was the head of the central organization department. And we asked him, you know, what criteria do you use? At, at, we, that same question. He says, well, at lower levels of government, you know, he says, we don't worry so much about ability. It matters more that people have good rapport. Like you see, emotional intelligence matters more, that they engage closely with the people. But at high levels of government, analytical ability matters much more because issues are much more complex. You know, so, it, so it's a huge apartment, and they use different standards to evaluate performance at different levels of government. And it's when I first heard that that it kind of clicked. I must confess, I, as a political theorist, I'm supposed to say I got my ideas from reading, you know, books from, you know, the library. But I must confess, this really, I thought was was a good insight. And I wish they were more transparent. Uh, there's a little bit of opening now, you know, um, about using not just maybe uh, maybe the three ticket system has been changed, and they're also using less examinations now for often for good reasons because. People in their 50s would have to get examinations to be promoted. Turns out that young people are better at writing exams, so many older people were upset by that. And also they found out that you know, uh, there's less reliance on elections also on, on, on using some sort of voting mechanism because they found that people, same reasons as in the West, people waste a lot of time campaigning and, 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 and prom doing promises rather than making promises rather than doing good things. So that's one reason why there's less emphasis on voting. Again, I, I got this through interviews with senior leaders. I wish sometimes they were more transparent uh, ab about some of these issues. Um, but there is more and more academic stuff coming out. Again, some of it gets knocked down because they, they're forced to use this language of authoritarianism. They have to compare with like, other authoritarian regimes, which are really different in nature. So I, I, I think that's really uh, Im important, um, uh, important to note that. So there's separate questions about values, right? What should a government do? Of course, uh, in China, there's, there's lots of emphasis on, on, on national unity um, and on, on serving the community. But again, I'm at this very specific question I'm asking here is what are the appropriate ways of selecting and promoting leaders? And here, um, and here I'm saying that it, there is much emphasis placed on ability and social skills and virtue, and I do think not being corrupt is a minimal standard of virtue. So that is my view. We can use that as a way of assessing. Now, I think both of you said that political loyalty is most important. Political loyalty is easy. All you have to do is don't be so uh, 
explicit in challenging the fundamental basis of the whole system. If you want to do well on those examinations for public officials, the easiest part of those are those propaganda parts about political loyalty. Anybody can do that. The harder parts, and they're more like high-level IQ tests, that's where not everybody can get through. It's not true. Political loyalty is a minimal condition. It's certainly not the most important condition. It's very easy to satisfy in most cases. That's not going to explain who gets, who, who rises up. Now it's true, people, some, 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 some people who study this empirically, they say, oh, it's patronage. Now patronage, what is another way of describing that language? It means that you have lots of allies in the political system, lots of friends. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you want to get things done in politics, look, in academia, it doesn't really matter if you have lots of allies or friends, right? You write books, you get it published, that's it. You don't have to persuade lots of people. In politics, different. In fact, social skills, I, I, I see this in the book, you know, again, re relying on evidence, relying much more than analytical ability in some sense. You have to persuade different stakeholders to do to, to get them on your side. And this means you have to have, have a lot of allies and friends in the system. And as you go up higher levels of government, the more allies and friends you should have. So one study showed that there's more patronage at higher levels of government. That's a good thing. It means that, it means that you have lots of allies and friends in the political system. It's easier to get things done. What's wrong with that? That's part of being a successful leader. Again, it refers to both intellectual ability and social skills. And the way of measuring social skills is how well you perform. And the way of showing how well you perform is how many allies and friends you have. So of course, at higher levels of government, you would expect to have more allies and friends. That's a good thing. What's wrong with that? That's part of being a meritorious. Now, I, these comparisons with Voltaire and so on, I mean, they're different, right? They're, they don't have much. Voltaire actually had, uh, well, anyway. They didn't have personal experience with, uh, with China, right? They tended to rely on these grand schemes, that, and, and their main motive was criticizing Western societies or praising them, you know. Uh, but this is different, right? I mean, my, my book comes directly from my experience living and working in China. I'm directly influenced by that. It's, uh, in that sense, it's really different uh, than those earlier uh, uh, Of course, they're much, um, you know, great thinkers. I don't even want to compare, but just in terms of the way that they think about China, at least my view, comes from personal experience uh, living and working there. Um, and again, I'm not, and I'm not, finally, on this issue of legitimacy, um, I'm not saying that, um, that meritocracy is the only, way of, of, uh, the only way that the political system is more legitimate in the eyes of the people. Again, in my book, I say there's, there's four sources. You know, one is nationalism, one is performance, one is democracy, and one is meritocracy. So all, there's, I'm not, but it's a very important source of legitimizing the political system, and that, that, that's my only claim. Just one little thing about you can't teach Western values in class. Fortunately, I haven't. That's lots of these orders. First of all, I don't, they don't say that. It's like s textbooks that are purely founded on Western ideas can't be the sole textbooks in some classes, like in economics, okay? That's, it doesn't affect, uh, you know, we're actively recruiting now, uh, per, you know, somebody who's a professor of Western political thought, you know. Um, and also these ideas are often, they come from the top in very abstract form or general language. When at the local level, they're often ignored, if not violated. So let's not get too upset. Of course, I'm totally in favor of academic freedom, and I'm going to, to be frank, if that comes to that, if, you know, then I would face serious issues. But so far, I haven't uh, had to face it, although I've only been there for, uh, since January. So maybe I'll change in a few months. Can we thank Daniel and our two commentators? Thank you. Thank you.